we are going to look at Colossians chapter 2. But as we get into that, I want to share, we... The Church of Christ and the Christian churches belong to a movement that they came from a movement called the Restoration Movement. And there were a lot of things that happened in this movement, but one of them was a rejection of creeds. And so they had mottos, which is a little ironic to me. We have mottos, but not creeds, and they all kind of end up the same thing. But one of those is this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. When it comes to faith and what we believe, we need to be unified in the essential doctrines of our faith. In those non-essential doctrines, we need to allow liberty, and then we need to do all things in love. Whether they be essential or non-essential, every discussion that we have, every debate needs to be done in love. And so I share that because the biblical writers and the, the people that lived in biblical times, they didn't think with the same pro- thought processes that we think. Because this statement that's on the board or on the screen, you can see, I, I thought about spending a lot of time making a graphic to illustrate what I'm about to do and realized I could do it a lot quicker with a marker and a piece of paper. So, we would say it like this, like it's on the screen. So you start here, with essentials, and it's a linear thought process. You start with essentials and then you move on from there. And you move forward. But with the biblical writers, what happens is it would be more like this. Instead of having a line, you would have the essentials right here And you would start here and you would cover them and you'd go back over them and you'd come back and it's more of a cyclical spiral thought process, which is why some who really have that linear thinking get frustrated because the Bible repeats itself so often. And you're going to notice today, if you've been studying through Colossians with us, Paul again repeats some of the theology about the nature of Christ. But there's a few reasons that they do this, partly because their thought process goes in circles like this. In fact, if you read some British literature, the Britons do do this quite a bit. They are very cyclical, and they'll take 45 pages to make a five-page argument. I say this because there are several reasons that it happens, and I wanted to point it out and acknowledge it. But one of the reasons is because they would hear these things. Remember, they lived in an oral society. They were writing these things down, and they had the scribes copying them. But unlike us, they didn't have 20 Bibles sitting on the bookshelf in their house collecting dust. They would hear it. And if you're going to hear something, we all know that you have to hear it several times before it sticks. And so they would mention something. They'd go and talk about something else, and they'd come back and cover that same issue again. And part of it was the culture. I also think of a story I heard once, and I think it's one of those sermon illustration stories that gets passed around. So you may have heard this, but I still think it's funny. And there was a minister hired at a church. He was starting in his first week. He showed up and preached a sermon, and everybody said, that was really good. And so the second week, he shows up and preaches the same sermon. And everybody's leaving, and they're kind of confused, and they think, well, maybe he just didn't remember that he preached it last week. 
And so they let it go. And the third week he gets up and he says the exact same thing he did the previous two weeks. And people are leaving and they're a little bit more confused. They're starting to wonder if he's all there, if he's firing on all cylinders. And finally, after four Sundays of hearing the exact same sermon, somebody goes up to him and says, you know, you've, you've shared the same sermon four weeks in a row. And he responds with, well, when you start living it, I'll preach something different. I think that's part of what we see in Scripture. It's to emphasize that these are things that are important. And if something is an essential, you're going to need it over and over and over. We don't just drink water once and then we're done. Water is essential. We come back to it over and over. And so, and there's some mixing of metaphors and you have a lot of issues, but I think a lot of it is we have to be grounded in those essentials. And while we do need to move beyond them, and while we need to go from just the basics and from drinking milk to eating spiritual meat, those essentials are still there. And they're covered over and over. And in fact, what you see is that when those essentials get covered again, they go a little bit deeper. And then the next time, they go a little bit deeper. So today, we're looking at Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. It's page 984 in your pew Bible. The Colossian congregation, they, they faced a flood of false teaching. And there's a lot of speculation about what that false teaching was. It's clear that there was some with a Jewish basis because they talk about circumcision and the Sabbath and all of that. It's argued, though, whether it was all Jewish or whether it was some Jewish and some pagan or maybe even some Jewish with pagan combined and some hybrid, distorted theology. But what is clear is they faced some false teaching. And so I want to begin by just reading these first two verses, uh, verses 6 and 7 in Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I want to pause there for a moment because Paul sets the stage here for why this is essential. We are to be rooted in Christ. He, I would say that the number one essential to our faith is the nature and the person and the work of Christ. When I look at other religions or denominations, the first thing I look at is what do they say about the nature and the person and the work of Christ? Because if you're wrong with Christ, then it doesn't really matter what you believe. Everything else falls apart. Because if you believe the New Testament, you also believe, if you believe the New Testament and believe that everything it says is true and authoritative, then you're bound to believe that there's no other name under heaven by which we are to be saved. It all comes back to Jesus. Now, the, the way, in which, way in which we do church and our opinions on membership or no membership or whether you have a fellowship hall or no fellowship hall or a kitchen or instruments, those are things that I would say fall into that category of non-essentials. Other people put them in the category of essentials. But when it comes to Jesus, what we believe about him matters. 
He's not Satan's brother. He's not an equal with Satan battling it out to the end that we're hoping will win. Jesus is God who has conquered. And so Paul says to be rooted and built up. If you'll notice in these couple verses, it's almost humorous the way that Paul starts mixing metaphors here. How can you be rooted and built up? And and N.T. Wright points out that each has its own point to make. He points out that the the word for rooted is a past tense word. And so it indicates that it's a once and for all planting. I think of the old hymn, like a tree planted by the water, I shall not be moved. And in fact, in Jeremiah, it talks about roots that go down deep. And I'm about to get sidetracked. So anyway, a once and for all planting with roots that go deep into Christ. And then the built up is a present tense. And the NIV captures this really well. But it's a continual growth. And so it it would almost be better translated, rooted, and continually to be built up. Continuing to be built up in Christ. So the metaphor goes from a plant to a building, but you could also keep in mind the plant because a plant with deep roots and a good root system also grows up. And it grows to maturity. And so as it continues to get better root system and deeper and more deeply rooted, it also grows in maturity. But the most essential thing for that plant is those roots. Because without roots, it'll just blow over. It'll wither up. There's some struggle with what the ESV translates established in the faith. The NIV translates it strengthened in the faith, or strengthened in faith. But it's unclear if it's the faith that's to become stronger, or if it's becoming stronger because of faith, or faith stronger in the understanding of faith. As those sentences get dissected, it's difficult. But given the context of the teaching and instruction to continue to grow in understanding, and I would say, given the ESV translation of established in the faith, that that last option, that they are stronger in their understanding of faith and they're growing in their understanding of faith is what Paul is saying. We are established in this understanding and we grow and we're strengthened because of what we believe in our faith. And all of this contributes to the thankfulness that Paul continues to draw the church back to. Sometime, if you have a little bit of free time, read through the book of Colossians, just four short chapters, And no, every time he calls them to be thankful. And every time he mentions his thankfulness. Because this is a theme that abounds throughout this book. And it's to spill over and is placed at the center of Christian living. This abounding in thankfulness, it's pouring over, it's overflowing. It's not just filled up most of the way in that cup. That cup is just pouring over with gratitude. I think that's something that happens when we grow in our understanding of what God has done. And so all of that to say that for the Colossians to keep Jesus at the center of their lives, they needed to be rooted in the truths of Christ. For the Colossians to keep Jesus at the center, 
In the midst of all of this false teaching that is going on, all of this instruction that they had to be circumcised or they had to keep the Sabbath or they had to worship angels, if they were going to keep Jesus at the center of their faith and the center of their lives, they had to be deeply rooted in the truths of Christ. And so as we continue to read verses 8 through 23, pay attention to these truths that Paul communicates about Christ and his work. Let's pick it up at verse verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See, Paul's saying it's possible to put our traditional practices above Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through, the faith, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were once who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having raised... Whoa, sorry. I love it when I jump like four lines and miss my spot. Having... And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ." Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have an, indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul undoes all of the false teaching they would hear in one fell swoop, especially from the Jewish religious leaders. And it's kind of ironic because what he says is all of these things have an appearance of wisdom and asceticism, but they're, no use, they're of no use of stopping the sin of the flesh, which he knows very well because you see throughout the Old Testament, they have all of these rules and regulations and they're not preventing them from doing what they're called to not do. 
Really, in actuality, he even points out in other places that all the law does is show us how broken we really are. And so there are a few truths about Christ that Paul points out. The first is that he is filled with the fullness of deity. Remember back in chapter 1 where it says, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell? See, he's coming back to that, and that essential. We cannot lose sight of the fact that Jesus was not just a person born in the first century. Jesus was fully God. Everything he did hinges on that reality. If Jesus was not fully God, then you are still dead in your sins. What you believe about Jesus matters. He was filled with the fullness of God. He was also the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is Lord of everything. Everything submits to him. That's why Paul says in Romans 13, submit yourselves to the government because there is no government that has not been established that was not put there by God. Whether you agree with those political rulers or not, they have been put there by God to do a task and fulfill a purpose because Jesus is the Lord of all rule and authority. And nobody has rule or authority except that which has been given to them by Christ. It matters. This matters because it changes how we live. When we realize that Jesus has rule and authority and anybody that has authority has been given that authority from Christ, it changes the way we talk about them. It becomes harder for us to talk poorly about leaders we disagree with when we realize that their authority has been given to them by Christ. And when we talk bad about them, we're talking as if Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. Which is why in 1 Timothy 2, Paul calls us to pray for them instead. He was filled with the fullness of deity. He has, ruler, he has lordship over all rule and authority. And he has disarmed and shamed the rulers and authorities in his triumph. I, that's from verse 15. Let me... I forgot to mention that. That first point is from verse 9. The second one's from verse 10. That last one's in verse 15, if you were wanting that. When I read that, I can't help but think over to Colossians 6, where Paul says that we're not fighting against flesh and blood. Our enemy is not flesh and blood, but rulers and principalities moving in the world. I think there's a shift there. The, the terms are the same, but I think there is a shift in what Paul is talking about. Because all rule and authority is under Christ's lordship. But the rulers and the principalities of the dark world and the authorities of that dark world that we're waging war against have already been disarmed and defeated through the cross. And the last nail was put in their coffin in the resurrection. They have no power. The victory has already been won. In fact... The war is won. There are still battles being fought. We just celebrated VE Day, correct? Victory over Europe. But there were still battles that happened after the war was officially over. Because there were people that didn't get that message. 
Satan has the message that the war is over, but he's still hoping to maybe get something done and trying to accomplish something. And so we still face those battles, but they've been disarmed and shamed through Jesus' triumph. These are the essentials that we need to understand. Christ is God. Christ is head of everything. And there is nothing There is no sin, there is no evil that can have power over us if we don't let it. Because Christ has disarmed them and he has shamed them. And the only way that there is power is if we don't cling to Christ. I feel like I need to put a little footnote in there that I I am not saying there aren't things that we won't struggle with and addictions that we won't fight to overcome. But I believe that we can find freedom in Christ because he has disarmed that power over us. And so, there are some results also that Paul points out. I don't know how else to outline this other than results for Christians. And the first is that they are filled in Christ. In chapter 10. Brought to fullness, they are made complete. In Christ, we are filled in Christ which is incredible to think about. There are several ways to look at this, but Jesus tells the disciples it's better for him to leave than for him to say because if he stays, then the Holy Spirit can't come. And he promises that he will send his Holy Spirit if he leaves and that the Holy Spirit will indwell his believers. Which means, between what Paul says here and what Jesus says, as Christians, the fullness of God dwells in us. Not in the same manner that it dwelt in Christ, but we literally, we are the temple of God because God lives in us when we accept Christ and we commit our lives to him. And then Paul points out that we have been circumcised with Christ by putting off the body of flesh in verse 11. He goes on in verse 12 to point out that that happens when in baptism we are buried with Christ And then through being raised from baptism, we are raised with him. There's a phrase there in 12 that I want to point out because I think this is interesting. When we are raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. A little bit of baptism theology for just a minute. Because the arguments against baptism are always that there is nothing I can do to be saved. And baptism is a work. That's what is argued against it. Uh, One, I I would say that is wrong because I don't baptize myself. It's not a work that I do. Somebody has to do it for me. But I think the most incredible thing that Paul points out here is the only reason that baptism is effective is that we have faith in the powerful working of God. That when we are baptized, we are demonstrating that we have faith in God to do what he said he's going to do. Because we were raised with Christ as we came up out of the baptistry through our faith and the powerful working of God. And if you want to read sometime a deeper theology from Paul on baptism, read Romans 6. Because he really dives into what baptism is there. This also, this circumcision of the, uh, with Christ is the long prophesied and commanded circumcision of the heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, 
it's written, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And then in chapter 30, verse 6 of Deuteronomy, it's written, and the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. See, this circumcision that Paul references, that he says is done through our baptism, has been prophesied and both prophesied and commanded throughout the Old Testament. Because God repeatedly tells them that it's not just physical circumcision that matters, but you have to have a changed heart. Your heart has to be circumcised. And he, said, he commands them to do it. And then later he says, I will do it. And that prophecy of I will do it is fulfilled through Christ and the cross and us joining him in that circumcision when we are baptized. The next thing Paul says is that we are no longer dead. God has made us alive together with Christ. That's in verse 13. I think I've mentioned this before. I'm horrible with grammar. And when I was in college, writing a lot of papers, I learned that in the word processing programs, you can make grammar check a little bit more strict so that it catches everything that professors don't like to see. And one of the things that people don't like to see when they're reading writing is passive verbs. So things like, so-and-so made you, or we are made alive by God in Christ. They want it to be an active verb. What I learned is that word processing programs really hate Scripture, because if you copy and paste chunks of Scripture, they're marking all of it wrong because it keeps talking about what somebody has done for somebody else. Because there is so much passive tense in Scripture because it's all about what God has done for us. We are no longer dead because God has made us alive through Christ. And finally, we are completely forgiven and debt-free. Verses 13 and 14. Our debts were canceled out. We are debt-free because our debts were nailed to the cross with Christ. Paul points that out in verse 14. We, as Christians, when we follow Christ, we're no longer dead, we're alive with him because we are completely forgiven and debt-free because our debts were all nailed to the cross with him. Really, what we see is that in the cross is that final big year of jubilee that they were told throughout the Old Testament to practice that they never really did. The Old Testament does nothing but set up God's people for the cross. All of our debts are canceled in the cross. There is nothing we have left to pay. The Colossians needed to be rooted in the truths of Christ if they were going to face false teaching. But the problem is that we still face false teachings in additions to the faith today. Whether it be Wicca or New Age or any other form of closeness but distance from Christ. And so for us to keep Jesus at the center, we need to be rooted in the truths of Christ. Sorry, I noticed my typo. 
We need to be, not needed to be. We need to be rooted in the truths of Christ. I want to point out there at the end, it talks about food and Sabbath and all of those things that were being included in that false teaching. It's not by food or abstinence from a certain type of food or a certain type of drink or keeping Sabbath that we find salvation. Salvation comes through Jesus alone. There are no food or drink regulations that get one in or out of salvation. And to claim that there are is adding to the gospel. But I do want to point out, because every time I read this, I, I hear arguments in my head, the expected arguments of people saying, well, see, I don't need to keep a Sabbath, and I don't need to fast. Those are still spiritual disciplines that are very, very healthy. And anybody that has went a prolonged period of time without a day off and without a Sabbath can tell you that it is very unhealthy to not take a Sabbath. Jesus says God created the Sabbath to serve man so that we could have some rest. And so the spiritual disciplines, specifically fasting and Sabbath, are very helpful and they are very beneficial, but they have no salvific implications. They have no bearing on your salvation. They may wear you down and get you to see Jesus faster if you don't practice them once in a while, but they have no bearing on your salvation. And so the, the big two points that I want to point out, this one's from Harold, Harold Phillips. He says, any practice that robbed Christ of his position as our Redeemer should be resisted vigorously. Anything that tries to place something other than Jesus in that position of Redeemer needs to be resisted. There is salvation from no name under heaven other than Christ. There is no other way for us to be saved, for people to be saved, other than through the name of Christ. And the second thing is that grace and gratitude make up the rhythm of Christian identity and practice. To abound, back there in verse 7, in the Greek text means to overflow. The Christian's response is not a trickle, but a gushing forth from joyous gratitude. When we are rooted in the truths of Christ and we understand how horrible we really are and how great Christ's sacrifice for us really is, we can't help but overflow and gush forth with gratitude for what he's done. It's not a hose that trickles because it was left on. It's like a fire hydrant, completely open, just bursting forth because we are so gracious and thankful for what Christ has done for us that he was willing to be beaten and spit on and mocked and nailed to a cross so that our debts could be canceled. I know how bad it hurts when I am nailing something and I hit my thumb with a hammer. I can't imagine how much it would hurt to have those nails instead driven through my hand. Not to mention most of us aren't willing to hold a nail for somebody else when they are driving that nail because we don't trust them not to miss. I can't help but wonder if those soldiers missed a few times 
on purpose or on accident as they were driving the nails in just to make it a little bit more painful. When we understand what Christ has went through for us, we can't help but be thankful. We're thankful for our moms. How much more should we be thankful for Christ? If Jesus is going to be at the center of our lives, we need to be deeply rooted in the truths of what he has done. And we will understand that he is the only way and that there is nothing but gratitude that comes from that understanding. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your love for us. That even though we were sinners, and even though you know our hearts, we are deceived by our own hearts and our own intentions and our own motives, but you know the truth about our motive and our heart and everything that we do. And yet you are still willing to allow your son to die for us. We are thankful for that. I pray that we would live lives of gratitude for you. Living in a way that shows you that we are thankful for what you've done for us. May we cling tightly, rooted and built up and established in those truths of Christ that bring forth a life of thanksgiving. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.